Thank you, Bob, for that introduction. I wanted to thank uh, Pierce and the Program on African Studies uh, and Princeton University for inviting me to come and give this talk. Um, I hope that year three turns out to be a better year for the Egyptian Revolution than it was for the French Revolution. Um, but to speak even of the third year of the Egyptian Revolution is, given the uncertainty of events in Egypt and the current mood among American analysts and commentators, to throw down something of a challenge. Some widely cited observers, both on the left and the right, have argued that whatever has happened in Egypt, it is not a revolution. <clears throat> it may be an upheaval, an uprising, the threat of mob rule, or the clever manipulation of events by an old elite to retain the structures that gave it power, but it is not a revolution. Others, equally widely read and cited, such as the distinguished chair of the political science department at Barnard, Sherry Berman, writing in a widely discussed essay in Foreign Affairs, have argued that the events of early 2011 initiated a process that, whether revolutionary or not, will ultimately transform the country into a democracy in a couple of hundred years. <laughs> Between the skepticism of the conservatives and the radicals on the one hand, and the desire to write a Whiggish history of a still unknown future on the other, it seems rash to argue that we should look at something as specific as the third year of the Egyptian Revolution. The obvious problem with the word revolution is that it has almost no clear meaning. Thanks to the work of Theta Scotchpole, a brilliant scholar of comparative political sociology, we think we have a clear picture of the causes and consequences of a revolution based on its three main cases. France in 1789, Russia in 1917, and China in 1911. Unfortunately, however, the family resemblance among these supposed siblings is far from clear, and the proposed natural history of the origins of the uh, revolution among them is wholly absent in Egypt. That is, whatever Theta Scotchpole believed caused a revolution, we don't see any of those things happening uh, in Egypt. There was no fiscal crisis of the state. The coercive power of the state was fully intact, until January 28, 2011, and the armed forces remain so, even if the police were humiliated and forced from the streets for months by an angry population that destroyed dozens of their headquarters. And the revolution itself <coughs> seems largely to have bypassed the countryside, where the grievances due to inequality, poverty, and the absence of land are presumed to be felt most strongly. It is easy to understand why the claim that there was no revolution resonates so well in American academia. The alternative is that we would need to think seriously again about what we imagine a revolution to be. It is also not difficult to understand the popularity of the claim that it will all work out in the long run because it privileges those who know little about Egypt and much about other long durée. It also absolves American foreign policymakers of the burden of choice 
because over a sufficiently long period of time, it hardly matters what any particular act is in the present. A lesson that Egyptians, thankfully, had not yet taken to heart on January 25th, 2011. The alternative here would be the unpleasantly time-consuming work of actually learning the details of Egyptian political life at a moment when Egyptians themselves hardly can understand what's going on from one day to the next. There is one last, now largely forgotten, paradigm for thinking about Egypt, the one that Sherry Berman mentions, democratic transition. The problem with the idea of democratic transition, dearly beloved by the Obama administration, many of my colleagues in political science, and the Muslim Brotherhood, was that it presumed that the institutions of the state would be passed intact from the old regime to the new. Through elections, constitutions, and the circulation of new elites, popular sovereignty and democratic practice would reinvigorate the barren institutions of the old order. I refer to this as the Velveteen Rabbit Syndrome. If you use it up, then it becomes real. Where necessary, new institutions would be created. What, we are impelled to ask, went wrong in Egypt? What made it, as Nathan Brown is reported to have said, the stupidest transition ever? Or the revolution that never was? Or did the fault lie not in our Egypt, but in ourselves? Not least in our inability to recognize that the complicated and confusing period lasting a decade or more between the first observation of revolutionary upheaval and its conclusion is both more important and more certain than our structural theories of politics feel comfortable with. So I want to begin at the point where theories of failed revolution and failed democratic transition diverge, the institutions of the old order. What, what, what was happening this day, January 28th, uh, in Mohendasin, moving in the direction of Midana Tahrir? Is it a revolutionary upsurge, or is it a revolution, or is it something else? It's a little hard to tell from that picture. Theorists of failed revolution tell us that too many of Egypt's old institutions and old elites survived the 2011 upheaval. The armed forces, the judiciary the bureaucracy, and the old elites. Theorists of failed transition seem to believe that not enough of the old institutions uh, survived. But on closer inspection, they actually have a different concern. Given free elections and the doctrine of popular sovereignty, not enough Egyptians seem to have taken the outcome of the last year's elections seriously enough. And this is a bit of a puzzle. Specifically, the winners of the parliamentary and presidential elections, the Muslim brothers, have not been accorded the widespread legitimacy due a freely and popularly elected government. And here you can see the the police are gone on the morning of the 29th. Their police carriers have been burned out. Their headquarters in many places have been burned out. And I could show you pictures of empty streets with no police on them. And unfortunately, I don't have pictures of the week before when they were filled with police. The army is still intact. So this is puzzling. Free and fair elections are the tonic of transition. 
all theorists of transition recognize that free elections are not, as they put it, enough to ensure democracy, but free elections by definition are the way in which the population expresses its will. Once elections have been held, it is up to the new government to do its work and for the people to retire and wait a decent interval before judging the government's performance at the ballot box, rather than through ongoing and defiant street demonstrations and conflict. This is even more puzzling because it is a little difficult to argue that this has something to do with Islam, that somehow Islamic culture has led to a rejection of elections, because it's the Islamist parties that won the elections, and they've been quite vociferous in asserting the doctrine of popular sovereignty and electoral legitimacy. In fact, they're surprised uh, that having won a majority in the parliament, they don't now get to run things for four years without any interference. The dominant concern in Egypt today is high increasing levels of polarization. Oh, this is my, I have two last little slides. So this is the place where you get cheap bread, subsidized bread. And one other element of the old elite is the financial, the financial elite. Uh, I don't know if you noticed those two figures. One of them is me. I'm not actually part of the financial elite in Egypt, but I was, I was invited to speak to the financial elite. So they're still intact, uh, and they still are holding meetings. The dominant concern in Egypt today, I think, is the high and increasing level of polarization. And it seems to be common in the United States and Europe to describe this as a conflict between the country's minority urban secular middle class and its presumed Uh, religious Islamic majority. Uh, And this has become something of a joke in Egypt. Uh, This is a guy who's drinking from a uh, kind of traditional ceramic water bottle, but around the outside has been wrapped a little wrapper from a mineral uh, mineral water bottle. And at the bottom, somebody is saying, is this uh, mineral water or not? Oh, person who's been educated person. Okay. That Egypt has become increasingly polarized is obvious, but it's doubtful that the polarization that paralyzes the country is between the secular middle class and the rest of Egypt. Um, There is a secular middle, kind of a secular middle class. Uh, This is the president of the Egyptian Social Democratic Party, uh, Hamad Abdelhar, at a demonstration in November 2012. Uh, But much of the violence in the streets today is occurring outside of Cairo, in the canal zones, and in the provincial cities of the Delta, places where the liberal secular middle class is not known to have its strongholds. Uh, There are, however, there have been persistent attempts, though, uh, to portray some very sharp differences uh, between Egyptians on the basis of religiosity, And uh, one such poster, which I happened to see about a year ago in Cairo, shows the army on on your right, uh, who are, of course, people who are praying and really good guys. And then on the left, you have a group of people who casual American observers might think of as religious Muslims because the women are, several of the women are wearing headscarves, but actually it's very clear uh, from the poster that they're really not. They're really people who are of the devil's party. 
<coughs> and the underlying caption uh, says that basically some people will look like reformers, but they're really corruptors. So the question even in Egypt is not so much who, what are the boundaries of this uh, opposition, of, of this polarization, but ways of presenting it, given that many of the people on one side or the other, especially opposed to the Muslim brothers, are not, in fact, what we would think of as secular Western uh, liberals. There is a marked, um, the, there has been significant violence, I'll talk about that in a bit, uh, but socially, we can speak of polarization on many dimensions. There's a marked rural-urban dimension to what we see. That is to say, people in the cities who are often much more opposed to the Muslim Brothers and their rule, and people in the countryside who have been much more uh, supportive, uh, at least in terms of voting. In terms of religion, there's obviously a polarization uh, between Christians and Muslims, but perhaps more important is the polarization within the Muslim community itself Uh, about how the Brotherhood understands Islam in the modern world and where that conflicts with the practices and beliefs of many uh, other Egyptians. Lastly, there is rather widespread dissatisfaction with what many Egyptians perceive as the Brotherhood's own internal lack of transparency and democracy, and it's constantly aggrandizing organizational ambitions. That is, its tendency to put the Brotherhood as an institution above uh, any other Um, concerns that Egyptians might have. These, in turn, provide local and national elites with the basis through which they have opposed the Brotherhood, but over which they have very little influence. There's There's not much doubt that at this point the opposition to the Muslim Brothers by political leaders is only tenuously connected to the broad outbursts of massive protest and violence against them. Now, it's possible to use the electoral maps to see not simply geographic polarization, a geographic dimension to polarization, but in fact to see how it's grown over time. So Egypt has had a lot of elections. Two constitutional referenda, parliamentary elections in three successive tranches with runoffs for two chambers, which is a really stupefying number of elections to try and go through, uh, and a presidential election and its runoffs. So in March 2011, there was a constitutional referendum on and a new constitution proposed by the armed forces. And the country was largely green, um, which in this particular map means it voted in favor of the constitution. You can see there are a couple, there's some variation in the uh, depth of the green, but basically, overwhelmingly, the country voted in support of the new constitution. <clears throat> I don't have a good map Nobody's produced really good maps for the parliamentary elections uh, that I know of. But in the first round of the presidential elections in 2012, uh, we see a very, very different picture. And here what we see with five major candidates running is support for Morsi in red. Kind of funny how he also gets to be the red states or the red provinces. Um, And uh, Shafiq an army general gets the blue states or the blue provinces. I don't know quite how that worked. Um, But at any rate, what you can see is in the center of the country, um, there's a very, very strong vote for uh, Ahmed Shafiq, the former general, and around the periphery, there's a vote for other people. The um, green is a vote for Hamdin Sabahi, who was essentially a Nasserist. And his vote was quite surprising. 
because it had been expected that that green area would primarily go either for Morsi or possibly Abel Fatur, and that didn't happen. So <clears throat> what we see now here is the beginning of some very significant geographic uh, differentiation. Now, in the second round of the presidential elections, uh, what we see is something different, uh, which is essentially the, that little strip of um, the Red Sea. There are, there are very, very, few, very few people live there, so we're just going to ignore that, although it looks big. But basically here what we can see is, again, Cairo and a portion of the center of the delta emerge as areas of profound opposition to Morsi, in support of a former army general uh, who would otherwise not have been very popular in these areas. And Morsi's own support is primarily in Alexandria and in the rural areas of uh, parts of the Delta and the rural areas of the South. Okay. So <clears throat> moving along, the constitutional referendum of December 2012, we see something different again. The little red provinces are the provinces that actually voted to reject the Constitution. So from that completely green map of 2011, we now see a situation in which three very different provinces, Karabia, Cairo, and Minofia, have emerged as localized centers of opposition to the Brotherhood. And all three of these provinces uh, had voted yes in the March 2011 referendum. They had voted against Morsi in both the initial and the runoff stages. And it's a little hard to figure out what's common except that they don't want the Muslim Brotherhood in charge. That, that's, the, that's the tricky part here. Tanta, sorry, Harbiya is the province in which the textile center of Mahalla is located, where strikes in 2006 are often said to have kicked off the revolutionary process. So in some ways, if we look at Harbiya, we see a province in which perhaps uh, the urban working class, uh, the vanguard of the Egyptian revolution, is standing up against uh, religious domination. That's a story we could tell. Uh, what's interesting, however, is that the nearby town of Tanta has been even more determinedly anti-Muslim brother than uh, Mahala. At every point over the last two or three years, if Mahala has voted one way, Tanta has voted more extremely that way. Okay. Now, Tanta itself is a textile center, but what's also interesting about Tanta is that it's the location of uh, the headquarters of a very important Sufi order, the Bedouia, uh, and I think it's said that annually the population of the town doubles when the mullet of the Bedouis uh, occurs in the town. So there's an annual pilgrimage there. So Harbiya seems to be a place that we'd like to know a lot more about, uh, but uh, luckily not to disturb the sleep of my colleagues in political science, we don't know much more about it. <clears throat> Cairo is the most urban of the governorates, and of course has the largest concentration of the so-called secular middle class. And there's probably some interesting gerrymandering that makes Cairo different from Giza in terms of voting. Uh, Cairo tends to, has tended to vote against the Muslim Brothers. Giza, which is right across the river, not so much. Uh, Menofia, however, is unlike both Cairo and Garbia. And the best explanation that anybody has come, with, come up with so far to explain its behavior is that it is the home of Sadat and Mubarak. And somehow some ghostly presence, evidently, 
um, hovers over the entire province uh, to make it, depending on your point of view, more conservative, anti-revolutionary, uh, or against the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, but again, as I say, luckily, uh, we don't need to concern ourselves with information or data uh, because nobody knows all that much about uh, Manofia at this point. Given recent events, it might now be possible to add the canal cities of Suez, Port Said, and Ismailia to the, home, to the list of anti-Muslim brother strongholds. <clears throat> there are specific grievances in each of these uh, cities, all of which played important roles in the early days of the revolutionary uprising uh, in 2011. The most well-known stems from the death of 79 people at the Port Said soccer stadium on February 1st, 2012, during a match between the local team, uh, Al-Masri, and the Kyrene athlete team. What's made this much more acute is that a court, the Port Said court, sitting not in Port Said but in Cairo, where it evidently felt a bit safer, um, handed down death sentences uh, against 21 defendants uh, in those riots, and this led to more demonstrations and riots. The verdict itself was handed down on January 26th, which was an unfortunate day, perhaps, for the Muslim Brother government for such a uh, verdict to be issued, uh, because, of course, it was the anniversary of the demonstrations that caused the collapse of the Mubarak government. <clears throat> so massive, massive rioting and demonstration broke out in Port Said uh, and the other canal cities, as well as Alexandria. And in response, President Morsi did what Egyptian presidents have often d- done when they faced opposition. He went out and spoke to... No, no, he didn't go out and talk to the demonstrators. Don't worry. Okay. He didn't break the mold. In response, President Morsi declared a state of emergency and curfew, intending, therefore, to clamp down on the demonstrators uh, who promptly and uh, with great glee and gusto broke the curfew by announcing street demonstrations scheduled to begin at the very hour the curfew was scheduled to begin. And again, this is actually quite different from the events of January 2011, because in January 2011, when the army declared a curfew, uh, people did stay inside because they were quite uncertain about what would happen next. At the, now, it appears that when the government calls a curfew, it's more or less throwing down a challenge to the population to ignore it. The army refused to enforce the curfew, and Morsi was left slowly to withdraw it. First, he said it was up to governors to figure out how long it would be extended, and then he allowed it to fade away. So one of the peculiarities of the last two years is that the authority of the executive and the legislative branches of government have diminished, while the legitimacy and authority of the judicial branch and the armed forces especially since it relinquished power in August 2012, has actually increased. The armed forces have actually become more independent constitutionally uh, than they have ever been before, and practically probably as well. The judiciary has intervened in politics frequently and with remarkable independence, sometimes as when the judiciary dissolved Husni Mubarak's National Democratic Party the courts gained universal praise. Although one could argue that should have been a political decision by either the executive or a legislative body. At other times, as when the Supreme Constitutional Court proclaimed the first post-Mubarak parliament elected in violation of the Constitution, obviously it garnered less universal acclaim. 
although in that particular case, the court was largely following up on its prior jurisprudence. Perhaps unwisely, but nevertheless following up on its prior jurisprudence. The courts in Egypt, as in most of the world, are a counter-majoritarian institution. And their role, in fact, their very existence, may be hard to explain uh, in the context of the Arab world generally, where very, very few executives have allowed such courts independent um, authority. And in fact, it's even more anomalous within the framework of French jurisprudence from which the courts draw their underlying um, uh, notion of how to exist. That is to say, the French jurisprudential system, spring, the Egyptian jurisprudential system springs from France. France itself, in France itself, the courts do not have the kind of power of review that the Egyptian courts have and have sought to have for the last 50 or 60 years. It's hard to fully explain this, and again, luckily, not very many people have looked into it. But I think what we're seeing is the result of two different trends. One is the culmination of at least 100 years of judicial culture in Egypt based on asserting the necessity of the rule of law specifically defined as the right of the ordinary courts to control the executive and asserting claims of constitutional interpretive powers. And this goes way back before the Supreme Constitutional Court. This goes back actually to the Court of Cassation and indeed to the um, uh, the Conseil d'État. The other reality is that of the three branches of of government, the courts have been the one to which most Egyptians to which Egyptians have resorted most frequently and with most success over the last hundred years. Egyptians, from the point of view of their rulers, whether the British colonial rulers or uh, more recent um, nationalist rulers, are extremely litigious. And Egyptian executives have always found this very troubling because Egyptians seem to resort to the courts not simply to resolve conflicts with each other, but to resolve conflicts with the state. The courts, indeed, can be arbitrary, corrupt, and unresponsive, but they have proven to be less arbitrary, corrupt, and unresponsive than the other two major branches of government. So I think it's for this reason that there has been, in the years since 2011, so little popular response in Egypt for occasional calls to create exceptional tribunals. And this began shortly after the revolution, and it's continued down to the present. Let's create revolutionary tribunals to resolve a bunch of issues. Let's create revolutionary tribunals to cut through the delay and the procedural issues of the ordinary courts. And Egyptian experience with exceptional tribunals, whether revolutionary or military, has not been very positive over the last 60 years. So both at the elite level and the popular level, there has not been great support for the idea of creating these kinds of institutions, which indeed, going back to my first, where I, the entry point of this talk, is indeed that this is not an unrestricted revolution. But it's not exactly a democratic transition either. Looking forward, we can see two institutional forces with legitimacy. As I've said, uh, the armed forces and the courts, and we see two institutions paradoxically based on liberal notions of legitimacy, an elected president and a legislature that are having trouble establishing broad acceptance. And one problem for the president is that as he tries to wield uh, power, 
He does so in ways that are consonant with one regime that's dead and with another regime that has not yet been born. So let me briefly recall some of these. During the interregnum between the old constitution and the new one, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces had indeed um, dissolved the parliament because the Supreme Court ruled that it had been elected unconstitutionally. And I just want to point out as a little technical matter, the Supreme Court did not itself dissolve the parliament. The Supreme Court issued a judgment or a ruling that the electoral process had been unconstitutional. It was then up to the executive authorities to figure out what to do in response to that ruling. And they chose to dissolve the entire institution. They had other choices. They could have, for example, had new elections. They could have had elections for those seats that were in dispute. I'm not saying this would have necessarily been more successful, but it's a little bit misleading to put the entire onus on the Supreme Constitutional Court for everything that's happened since. On assuming the presidency, Morsi actually tried to issue his own constitutional declaration, ordering the lower house back into session. And the courts, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, and a significant portion of public opinion rebuffed his attempt. And he's been told several times, by the way, uh, including in public demonstrations, uh, that he doesn't have the full support of all of the people uh, and that he may have to take something to help him swallow things uh, that he doesn't want to. Recently, uh, his attempt to uh, create a state of emergency in the Canal provinces failed. In November, he issued a constitutional declaration that he hoped would work, and the idea was that he would replace the public prosecutor who had failed to achieve uh, convictions in certain cases, that he would argue for the retrial of defendants who had been acquitted, And he hoped that this would be the beginning, I think, of creating exceptional courts. And in addition, uh, he also, in the same declaration, shielded the work of the committee writing the new constitution from any judicial oversight. And a funny thing happened on the way to the implementation of this constitutional declaration, which is it was broadly rejected. Despite the fact that the old public prosecutor was unpopular, despite the fact that the There was a desire for the retrial, and there is a very deep desire, I think, among many Egyptians uh, to try the bad guys, convict them, and execute them, regardless of what the evidence shows. But surprisingly enough, there was also quite a bit of concern to maintain the integrity of the judicial system. So Morsi had, there were massive demonstrations, uh, including uh, in uh, Tahrir and in front of the presidential palace, And Morsi was forced to rescind the declaration, which he did, although in rescinding it, he said any actual effects of the declaration remained in force. So the declaration was no longer in force, but anything that had happened as a result of the declaration was still valid. And indeed, the Constitutional Convention wrapped up its work in record time in order to have a referendum on the Constitution to put behind it the issue of judicial review. And this is just, um, I, I, it's not really big enough, I don't think, for you to get a sense. Um, this was a poster in Tahrir uh, about a month and a half ago, and it's the bill that's come due for uh, the Morsi administration. Uh, and it lists various both human and uh, financial costs uh, for this. 
And it's a, part of it is very, very clever um, things that people have done in the last two or three years. Uh, this is presented in the form of an actual, it looks like an actual bill. It took me a while to figure out when I saw it that that's, that's exactly what, how it had been done. If you went into a store and bought something, you would get a little bill like this. Okay? Um, and indeed, there's been quite a bit of dissatisfaction. Um, here we have a couple of people, neither of whom, well, especially the guy on your left, I don't know if you can see him very well with the lights up, um, he doesn't look like your standard secular uh, liberal guy. But he might be in his heart of hearts, I don't know. You can't really tell by how people dress what they think. Um, an unfortunate lesson for many people. Um, so the woman is holding up a sign that says, thanks, for, thanks to President Morsi for dividing the people and uniting uh, the square, that is Tahrir. And the guy is holding a poster that says that Morsi is a danger to Egypt. Going forward, then, politics in Egypt today appears to be bounded by four forces. The judiciary, the army, the elected legislature and presidency, probably controlled by the Muslim brothers, and mass public protest. And this is what I think gives it not only its unsettled characteristic, but its truly revolutionary aspect. Mass public protests rare between 1952 and 2011 have often had the effect of forcing the executive to back down on policies, and the last two years in which they have become common are no exception. Unfortunately, sorry, uh, protests have increasingly turned into street battles between the Muslim brothers and their opponents, especially in provincial towns. <coughs> Even casual viewers of Egyptian television recognize that the canal cities and other towns of the interior are now scenes of pitched battle in which people are determined to attack and destroy the Muslim Brotherhood's local offices and headquarters, and the Muslim Brothers are equally determined uh, to defend them. The most obvious example occurred in early December 2011, 2012 when the national headquarters of the Muslim Brothers in Mu'attam in Cairo was actually attacked and torched. Generally, the police do nothing, as they do nothing in most street fighting today. The police have learned if somebody attacks them, they'll defend themselves. If there's somebody out there that they really, really dislike, they'll attack them. But generally speaking, if you're in a demonstration, and if the police are there, once trouble starts, they vanish. I've been surprised occasionally at how quickly um, their, their ability to disappear into thin air um, works. And there are also indications in many provincial cities that Muslim Brotherhood militias and those based partly on soccer clubs now engage in routine street battles with each other. And I was quite upset, I have to admit, uh, watching television uh, in November, one of the talk shows in Cairo, where it became clear that basically this had become a ritualized event and a member of one of the militias that routinely got into fights uh, with the Muslim Brothers uh, using rocks and Molotov cocktails and other things, referred to the population of the surrounding area as civilians. Um, which suggests that you've got people who now uh, engage in combat uh, pretty frequently and see everybody else as basically um, bystanders. 
So it also may come as a surprise, though, to realize that the Morsi government has actually been able to carry out many of its responsibilities, even if it has chosen to do so in ways that maximize the influence of the Muslim Brotherhood's political wing, the uh, Freedom and Justice Party in politics. So, for example, after quite a bit of backing and forthing, the government has recently managed to pass a law allowing it to issue Islamic bonds over the determined opposition of several forces in Egyptian society, none of which were the secular westernized uh, elite. It turns out, because these people play no role in the Shura Council, uh, which is the upper house, which now has legislative power. The determined opposition came from the Azhar, which initially said that although these bonds were called Islamic bonds, they weren't really. And besides that, even if they were, it would be dangerous to issue them because it would give foreigners the possibility of gaining ownership over Egyptian uh, national property. And the Salafi parties, who seemed to have decided, um, they seemed to have split. Some of them thought issuing the bonds was okay, and in general, interest is okay because it's not really interest, it's administrative costs. And others who've decided that it really isn't good because it really is interest. Uh, But what seems to be the most important problem here for them is that they're afraid of the dominance of the Muslim Brotherhood. So what they want to do is to prevent the Muslim Brotherhood from cementing its control over the state, and more or less anything will serve. The government actually has been able to negotiate an agreement with the International Monetary Fund. And the absence of a signed agreement has more to do with the IMF's concern about Egypt's unstable politics than with the incapacity of the government to reach a formal agreement. The government, it is clear, doesn't have much control over the police, but then, frankly, the opposition political leadership doesn't have much control over the demonstrators. If the opposition leadership often appears weak and divided, it's equally clear, by the way, and they've come in for a lot of of criticism. A a close friend of mine says they stamp their feet uh, instead of actually building an opposition. But the simple reality is not only is the opposition... Not only has the opposition had tremendous problems reaching out to a public base, the public base has been very, very unwilling to have much to do with the formal politicians who make up the opposition leadership. And just recently, there was another round of discussions in Mahala where it was increasingly clear that the trade union leadership is not very interested to tie their fate to an opposition political party. That is, regardless of what the opposition leaders are doing, Uh, the trade union leaders and the trade union members are simply not willing to tie their fate uh, to any particular political group, including the National Salvation Front. So what that suggests to me is that the broad outlines of power in the country are far from settled. There is, in fact, no widespread agreement on what constitutes uh, either stable institutions or the stable division of power. And that, I would suggest, is what's the hallmark of a revolutionary situation. What one analyst, I think a guy named Lenin, spoke of as the dual power. And in Egypt, what we've seen is this situation of dual power persisting now uh, for a couple of years. New parliamentary elections will be held beginning in April, and the opposition has to decide whether and how to participate. We'll talk about that in just a moment, because this morning it appears that they've made their decision. 
Not to participate is to allow the Muslim brothers and other Islamists to dominate the parliament completely, which, given the new constitution, will allow them fairly wide power over the government and society. Whether that will come with the ability to solve the country's pressing economic problems and increasing polarization is a lot less clear. And I think what we've seen is that the Muslim brothers have decided to simply try and ride out the storm. They still hope they're in the middle of a democratic opposition, and they still hope that everything that we've observed over the last couple of years is symptomatic of democratic transition. And therefore, sooner or later, the Egyptian people will get tired, go home, and allow the Muslim brothers to govern. One question, though, is whether they have much time. Uh, It's well known that Egypt's foreign exchange reserves are diminishing, which makes its ability to import, uh, especially wheat, problematic. And there's an evident lack of competitiveness in the export of of manufactured products or agricultural products. And it's quite remarkable that in Egypt today, there's a great concern with the weakness of the pound, the collapse of the value of the pound. If Egypt had a significant export sector, the collapse of the pound would be a good thing. And indeed, in some sections of the manufacturing uh, elite, uh, I think actually Magdi told that just the other day made this point, the collapse of the pound should be good. But the problem for Egyptians is that their industrial production is extremely um, unprofitable. So when we look at the price of, let's take, take one example that I'll draw out of the air, the price of steel billet, it turns out that steel produced in Egypt today costs between two and three times the price of steel for sale uh, in the international market. And that's a little surprising because Egyptian steel workers are certainly not overpaid by international standards and energy is subsidized in Egypt. Uh, Presumably what we're looking at are uh, monopoly, uh, profits, corruption, and other things which drive the cost uh, way up. Agricultural uh, exports are more problematic simply because lots of Egyptians don't seem very interested in uh, doing the Brazilian thing of increasing agricultural exports. And tourism uh, is, I I don't know if I should say declining, given given the tragedy of the other uh, day, Uh, but tourism is certainly problematic. And Egyptians uh, seem to believe that tourism in their country has a special, plays a special role that everyone wants to come to their country, uh, perhaps to see the pyramids uh, or the Egyptian National Museum uh, or perhaps downtown Islamic Cairo. But in fact, Egypt is primarily a tourist country of beaches. And there are lots of beaches that people can go to. Um, There are even beaches where they are more assured uh, than they might seem to be in Egypt that they can drink beer and wear skimpy bathing suits. Although I have to admit that one of those countries, Brazil, is actually even today a lot less safe than Egypt. Even today, I'd rather be wandering around Cairo than Rio. In terms of safety. For many, many other purposes, I'd prefer to be wandering around Rio. Um, So Egypt is by no means a country engaged in democratic transition. I tend to think of it, as I say, as a country uh, engaged in a revolutionary situation but with some peculiarities. And among those peculiarities are that it still has a functioning and respected court system. 
things that were not true of Russia, France, or China in that classic revolutionary period, and a functioning armed forces that will intervene to prevent the collapse of the state, but not much more. It is also a country whose urban population has been mobilized as never before. And this is a problem for both the democratic transition, for policymakers, and for pundits around the world. Um, It's also a problem for the Egyptian people in some ways, as different segments of this mobilized population come into conflict with each other. But it's primarily the pressure of this mobilization that has kept the entire process moving forward. So I could tell a Whiggish story, not about the future, but about the past. And this story would be that if we look at Egypt, there were demonstrations. The old regime conveniently and quickly got out of the way. Okay? The army came to power promising new elections. Okay? Indeed, almost magically, within the space of a year and a half, there were new elections. Okay? Not, a, not bad for a timetable. It was supposed to be six months. That was unrealistic. But within about a year and a half, uh, there were elections. A new constitutional convention was formed. Okay? There were presidential elections. They were free and fair. They elected some guy who actually was completely unknown uh, to most of the population before. And now all that we have to do is wait for another set of elections. After all, when the courts declared the old parliament to be null and void, everybody accepted it. So looked at from this point of view, the last two years have been great. Right? They've been wonderful. Things have moved promptly forward. And in fact, I even know some people who at least up until last October, November, uh, were writing uh, this kind of an account of the Egyptian revolution. The one thing that we overlook when we tell this particular Whiggish story is that every single, at every single juncture, it was the existence of mass demonstration, street pressure, and occasionally relatively high amounts of violence that moved the process forward. That got people to give, that got people who controlled authority to give up parts of it so that the process would move forward. So it's a country whose urban population has been mobilized as never before. And what's striking about Tunisia, Egypt, and Syria is the degree to which the mobilizations don't seem to end. They were supposed to, they were supposed to stop a while ago. Certainly after, I don't know, how many, 70,000 Syrians have been killed? I'm sure, at some, I'm sure the rational thing to do at some point must be to give up. Isn't it? I don't really do much game theory. I, I used to, but I, that, that must be the rational thing to do. Give up and go home. Okay? And that hasn't happened. Uh, in Tunisia as well, there continue to be demonstrations. There continue to be uh, unrest, which again troubles politicians and academics. And the same thing is true in Egypt. There's just no doubt that the demonstrations in Tahrir began to taper off, and everybody should have gone home. And especially after legitimate elections people should have docilely gone back to their houses and awaited the next set of elections in another four years. And everyone has assured all of us that there will be, and I think there will be. But what I think Egyptians, or many Egyptians have learned, is that waiting four years to see what happens with the next government isn't necessarily the best strategy for attaining the particular ends that people have in mind today. It's not that they don't believe that would ever happen, but it doesn't seem to work really well. That's the experience that people have had over the last 40 or 50 years. 
the experience that they've had is that, as I've said, the courts often are useful, and popular demonstrations are, turn out to be quite useful. And leaving aside how pragmatically useful they are, there's no doubt as well that people uh, who used to be not very mobilized now are. So <clears throat> this is an outdoor mass uh, in front of the television uh, station headquarters in Maspero in spring of 2011. So Christians who would not, before uh, January 2011, have dreamed of holding a separate demonstration of their own going on for weeks uh, in downtown Cairo, including the public, uh, a public mass, uh, had begun to feel that this was something that was doable and indeed necessary. In, on International Women's Day of 2011, which is March 8th, a very small number of women showed up in Tahrir. And they were, I think it probably was on the order of 100, 150 is my recollection. They were pushed out of the square, they were harassed, uh, and they were essentially not allowed to demonstrate. Um, <clears throat> a year ago, there was a demonstration by women, uh, and you can see it's a wide variety of women against sexual harassment. And I believe it was just three or four weeks ago, there was a demonst- this is a demonstration in which men basically formed a cordon around women so that they would be protected from harassment. I think three or four um, weeks ago there was a demonstration by women on their own carrying knives, which seems to have been an effective uh, form of protest. So again, I'm not, and I'm not suggesting that demonstrating with knives is a good thing. Um, but I am suggesting that again it shows a section of the population that was not formally, formerly highly mobilized has now become more so. Not all Egyptian women were out there demonstrating. It wasn't 40 million women. Uh, I I realize that. But it marks a significant transformation in the direction uh, that things are going. And as someone decided to remind President Morsi, um, I I would say this is an Egyptian variant uh, of Mao Zedong's uh, notion that revolution is not a tea party. I have no idea who this anonymous author is, uh, but basically... It's a warning to the president, or not a warning, it's a bit of advice to President Morsi um, that running the country is not exactly like running the University of Zakazi. So he may be good for running, and I think this is probably true in general, the Muslim brothers up to now. They may be very good at running institutions that are already there and functioning, where everybody has agreed to play by the rules. But where the rules are still unsettled, that's a very different situation. And what I think it means, let me just, two concluding points. What this means is that for the Muslim brothers, they need to learn not only how to win elections, which they become quite good at, they need to understand how to govern. And this involves reaching out to people beyond them, not simply formally, but substantively. And for the most part, they haven't wanted to do that yet. But it also means that the opposition needs to figure out how to contest governments more effectively and to present a program for governance. Partly because I think that's the way that you convince people that you can govern. So I have no doubt that the opposition has better... I, I Actually, I think this is undoubtedly the case. The opposition has a deeper bench, if you would. It has more people who are actually more capable of making policies that will solve Egypt's problems. But what it hasn't been able to do is to convince people that it's got its act together in some way that would allow it to actually take 
command of the government. And until those conflicts are settled and the deeper issues of polarization that I discussed have begun to be resolved, Egypt will remain in the midst of a revolutionary situation. Thank you. So. Ellis, I assume you will take some questions. We have ooh, about uh, 15 minutes. We need to clear out of here because uh, there's another class coming in. Um, sure. Uh, what is the relationship of the courts to Sharia law? <clears throat> well, um, constitutionally, the constitutionally the courts would be concerned with whether or not laws comply with Sharia, as the courts understand that to be to me. And based on what the courts have said, the Supreme Constitutional, the jurisprudence of the Supreme Constitutional Court is pretty clear, which is there's not much in Sharia that has much to do uh, with uh, Egyptian life as we know it. There's a small number of things which they consider to be very obvious, um, which would be applicable, and for the most part, they consider most of the body of uh, either substantive rulings of Sharia uh, or its ways of resolving questions to be not terrifically relevant unless the legislature were to begin to decide to implement uh, aspects of those rulings through legislation. And the legislature, like any legislature, can, subject to the overall, the overarching authority of the Constitution, make whatever legislation it wants. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, let me go, let me go backward. I, I mean, the problem with Barre is that he's not—he's just not a very effective political leader. Um, I know many of my friends think of him. I don't—I don't know him at all. I haven't read most of what he's written. Many of my friends think of him as a, a very responsible uh, and a person with high levels of integrity. Uh, but he's not a good politician. So he doesn't speak to people. He doesn't capture people's imagination. And for the most part, he doesn't have much of a presence. Uh, Hamdin Sabahi, uh, who may be a less principled person, uh, commands much, much wider respect among large numbers of people. He fits the mold of what a politician is supposed to be like. Um, <clears throat> in terms of, there is an argument which I, I've kind of thought about by Hussam Tamam, late Sam Tamam, uh, a very noted uh, analyst of the Muslim Brothers and former members. Uh, what he calls the ruralization of the leadership of the Muslim Brothers. And his argument is that if you look at the Muslim Brothers today, as opposed to in the 30s and 40s, 
their leadership comes much more from rural society, whereas in the past it came from urban society. Um, so, for example, Hassan al-Banna's daughters didn't, didn't wear head, uh, hair coverings. Um, that wasn't so common in the world that Hassan al-Banna lived in. Um, and his younger brother uh, recently, again, very sadly recently um, passed away, um, is an extreme, was an extremely liberal uh, commentator on Egyptian political life. So there's no doubt that people make fun of more, that, I mean, especially, I guess, um, again, so-called Western liberal people make fun of Morsi. Uh, I suspect that lots of other people in Egypt and the countryside don't make so much fun of him. Um, depends on, on where you're looking at him from. Uh, perhaps from the point of view of Princeton, someone who came from a city in uh, a rural area to become a professor at Cal State Northridge uh, hasn't had much of a career uh, because obviously Cal State Northridge is not Princeton. On the other hand, if you're somebody else from uh, a small town in the Egyptian Delta, uh, getting out of Egypt, uh, hired by in so whatever, whatever form it was as a consultant on, on that, at NASA and becoming a professor in the United States uh, and raising children who are well-educated um, can be quite successful. So the other thing is, I think, with the exception probably of Abdel Nasser, I don't think there's been an Egyptian president or king that Egyptians have not made fun of. Uh, it, it, we, people tend to forget about this. It used to be common to make fun of Egyptian kings because they didn't speak Arabic well. Um, so that's what I, I think that's what you're looking at. It's a political antagonism. It is. You may have a majority of 
voting for the Muslim Brotherhood. Yet, on day-to-day -day policies and politics and how decisions are made and talked about in the streets and contested, the same people who have voted for the Muslim Brotherhood may not actually support the Muslim Brotherhood right. for every line of policy that the Muslim Brotherhood are going to, to do. Because as the electoral crowd, they, are, they have now learned that they can have an impact on how the state is run. Mm -hmm. And no matter who belongs to the state, Muslim brother or not, it's confronted to this mobilized mass uh, that may vote one way, yet also contest the very government <coughs> it has voted for. Yeah, I think that's very possible. Uh, but that is, that, is, that is the notion of this, of, 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 of this mobilization, mm -hmm. which for the first time, and that's where <coughs> I think we might be from all the revolution, is in when the people think that there's an era that is gone and there are things that they can do now that they couldn't have dreamt of doing before. Um, that is the opening of the, mm -hmm. the new space. So I don't know if, if you should not push this notion of mobilization and its consequences on how you theorize. Yeah, I, I am thinking of it. The problem is that it puts me I got to think. I, I've actually the last couple of months I haven't written much for my blog, I, I, partly because I found things very upsetting. Not not just hard to figure out, but also upsetting. But the problem is that if you want to begin to argue for this kind of popular mobilization, as as a feature of democracy, which it certainly is, then you've also got to rethink um, the existing paradigms that we have about how democracy is supposed to work. Um, there, no, no, I, I don't have any problem with that, but it's something that I want to spend a little bit of time on uh, because you also don't, I mean, <clears throat> let me just, I'll just say one thing about this and then I'll take some other questions, take other questions. In the very early days of the revolution, there were a group of jurists um, who came into Tahrir and argued that the mobilization itself had destroyed the legitimacy of the old constitution. And in some ways that's very, that was very attractive and very important at the time. The downside of that is, if that's the case, how easy does it become to destroy constitutions? And how easy do you want it to be? What's the role of mass, mo what, do you, what do we want to think about the role of mass mobilization as being? And so I think you're, I do want to push this idea, but I also want to think a little bit more about where I think it fits in to the notion of emerging democracies, because it has a downside. So I'm going to... Um, okay. uh, thank you very much for your talk. I'll keep it short. Um, about uh, social mobilization. Uh, at the start of your talk, you criticized the uh, Islamist secular divide. Often people describe when talking about social mobilization. Later on in your talk, you have the tendency to describe people supporting the Muslim Brotherhood, so like the Muslim Brotherhood people going to the streets in this sense. My question is to what extent is social mobilization on the street actually reflected or a reflection of the political sphere? So is it Muslim Brotherhood support is going to the street, or is it something else? And are there also people from Hezbollah or you know other types of Salafists or not? Or <coughs> how do these cleavages, how are they reflected on the street? Before you answer that, uh, this young woman has had her hand up for a long, long time. And uh, unless, oh, uh, no, you, could you I, ask your? No, go ahead. Oh, okay. And, and, uh, and that would be the last question. Oh, and, I see. Well, this is for the opportunity. Um, I wondered whether uh, you could uh, say a little bit about 
um, how far its powers will be in, in advising parliamentary proceedings. I understand there's advisory power, but obviously not veto power. And also in terms of how independent al-Assad will be, according to the new constitution, who will appoint the leadership? Um, and how, how will the leadership be recruited within al-Assad? Okay, first, uh, <coughs> there are different kinds of mobilization. The Muslim Brothers are an organization, and they can mobilize people by telling, calling up their networks, literally, and telling people to go out into the street. And generally, their supporters show up at 8 and leave at 5, because that's when the bus goes home, and, and that's how things largely work. Although they do have militias <coughs> that play a less controlled role. Um, and one of the differences is that what, what we think, I'm not quite sure what we want social mobilization to be, but the other people, who I don't, th as I say, I don't think are, I don't want to make the religious-secular divide. Here I'm making it around the question of organization and what people think of as its consequences. There uh, you get much more spontaneous uh, mobilization. And the thing that's peculiar, if you go back in time, is that at one point the claim of the Muslim brothers was precisely that they represented the spontaneous reality of Egypt. And what's increasingly clear is that they represent one reality of Egypt, but not the spontaneous reality of Egypt. And, and that's, by the way, what I think led, has led Tariq al-Bishri astray in, many, in his practical politics, not necessarily in what I still think often are his insightful comments about the nature of politics in Egypt. So in terms of the Azhar, the new constitution basically says that um, the uh, Azhar, actually it doesn't say the Sheikh al-Azhar, it says that the higher ulama council, acting in some unspecified way, probably it seems through Dar al-Iftah, will comment on, can comment on legislation. Uh, actually, so I think it says Parliament has to take the advice of the Azhar in legislation that, res that regards Sharia. So the question is, who decides what that is? Um, the Azhar has, has, has already begun to intervene in ways that the Muslim brothers have found to be totally undesirable and unacceptable. Um, and the, the real problem here is political. I think the real problem has nothing to do with, with Sharia uh, as such. It has to do with politics. The question is how often, first off, legally, taking advice in Egyptian jurisprudence has a particular kind of meaning. Uh, so it actually means you've got to get something in writing, and then you've got to pay some attention to it, and then you may or may not have to respond formally. That's the first thing. Okay. It basically involves the Azhar in a range of political issues, which its leaders ha had indicated they didn't want to be involved in, but now they're involved in. And secondly, I think it's going to create a certain tension for the Azhar because no government can now let the Azhar be completely on. Despite the claims of the independence of the Azhar, it's very difficult to imagine letting it be simply running on its own if it's going to create, if nothing else, public relations nightmares for a government where the government wants to pass some piece of Islamic legislation and the Azhar says that's not it. In terms of the, the choosing of the new sheikh, the, the Constitution was designed to allow Tayyib to remain basically the uh, uh, Sheikh al-Azhar for life. Uh, the crucial compromise there was, although he had been a member of the higher committees of the National Democratic Party, um, he was allowed to, to basically, he's the only member uh, of the high-level member of the former NDP who's actually allowed to remain in government. All the rest have been uh, summarily uh, gotten rid of. Basically, the Sheikh al-Azhar appoints many of the members of the Higher Ulama Council. The Higher Ulama Council then chooses the Sheikh al-Azhar. Uh, so it's going to be a process, I think as, as uh, Professor Hamoudi pointed out, it's going to be the same kind of process with the judiciary, 
On the one hand, I think the Muslim Brotherhood would like to find ways to begin to use what powers they have to influence these um, institutions and circles. On the other hand, up until now, the internal um, legislation governing these groups makes them highly self-perpetuating. And therefore, it's very hard to break into them. Uh, the, the one downside is, if you ever do manage to break into them, then they will become self-perpetuating in another way. But that day is not here yet. Uh, so again, that's just to sum up, as Bob said I should do that, and we're almost out of time. That's why I see this as such a, a revolutionary situation. All of these conflicts are quite open-ended. Uh, They're not resolved. They're not resolved not because there's not legislation about how to, uh, what to do. It's because there's no agreement socially about what are the appropriate, what should I say, informal mechanisms governing how the formal mechanisms are going to work. And until that happens, then the formal mechanisms simply become another way for the unrestricted conflict over political power, Uh, whether you like Carl Schmidt or whether you like some other guy, um, are going to be played out.